want to talk to Michael Dorn about flying. Okay. Flight. Let me. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm just getting a. Hey, Taylor's still working there. Oh, I'm sorry. So when when did your interest in in flying and flights begin? Was it was oh, it the 60s? You, the, the 60s. 60s you yeah. wanted to get in and fly yourself. Always, yeah. Always. Um, my brother and I were big um, fans of aviation movies. We watched all the aviation movies when they come out in the 50s and 60s. Some really great ones. Um, and then um, in the late 60s and early 70s, it really became an obsession. Uh, I would go out to airports and just watch airplanes take off for hours and hours. Um, and I was old enough to where I was, uh, I got my selective service call to get drafted. And I went down there and because of my eyesight, I couldn't, um, couldn't um, go into the military and because of that oh, you want to do this uh, sorry about that um, what? my wife's getting trying to get a, get a hold of me um, um, so so you went in and uh, because of your eyesight you you couldn't go into the service yeah I couldn't get a service and I couldn't um, volunteer and I didn't want to volunteer if I couldn't fly so I stayed out of it but uh, my my um, uh, interest grew and grew until I um, I knew everything about World War II airplanes, about jets, about everything. I really was a aficionado without having flown. I had a chance when I was on ships. Um, Larry Wilcox was a pilot and he got his license and he said, hey, why don't you come out and fly this? And I missed my opportunity. But um, And then the first season of Star Trek, there was a, a guy on the show, Greg Benson, who, who was a pilot. And uh, he and I would talk flying whenever there was a downtime. We actually had a little map behind the stage with a little string that showed how many miles and how many hours it takes. And we would say, how long would it take to get there? What if you had an airplane that, that flew this fast and everything? And so, um, and then after that, I just went, um, I said, okay, you know, um, let me find out if I'm any good at this. And so that's what I did. And I got my license in 1988, and I started, uh, luckily I, I lucked on a, uh, a flying club with a bunch of pilots that were like-minded, and we flew all over the place and took you know, airplanes and flew each other's airplanes all over the place, and I started buying and selling airplanes. What were some of the movies that, uh, that captivated your, your imagination in, in the 50s and 60s? Um, one was uh, Flying Leathernecks. John Wayne. The other John Wayne movie was Flying Tigers. was a uh, was a great one. Um, there was one called Men of the Fighting Lady, which was a a pretty decent. It was okay. It was decent, but it wasn't a great movie. It's in uh, it's in the box sets, but they don't uh, you know remaster and re-release. No, not computers. those. Not those. Um, also, um, it's uh, toward the unknown, which is very interesting because. I love the the movie when I saw it, and I think the last time I saw it was many many years ago, and I I bought it recently. I found it and bought it, and I had my girlfriend and I we have our movie nights and we sat down. I said, hey, let's watch this one. She goes, okay, and I watched it. And at the end of it, I went, that wasn't really a good movie, was it? You know, and she <laughs> goes, not really, Michael. I said, I know. What was I thinking? But. The flying sequences, you know, were very rare, but they were really, really great. 
And there was a, a, a dearth of flying movies. Uh, not a not a dearth. Is that a dearth? Yeah, not a lot. Yeah, not a lot. Yeah, not a lot. Uh, for a long time, uh, there was uh, Twelve O'Clock High um, back in the fifties, which was a, a wonderful movie. Um, and so, uh, it didn't really. Not a bunch of them came around uh, that I really liked, loved until um, Top Gun. And Top Gun was a movie I could watch forever and ever. I could just watch that. Did you watch the three D re-release? No, I didn't, um, but I did get the, um, I don't think it was, yeah, no, I bought the 3D and it has all the the um, extras, mm -hmm. and the extras were actually almost as, as fun as the movie itself. I find that a bit often the case with Tony Scott movies, that yeah. especially where the movie, you know, I've, I've watched it 17 times, but uh, but when you actually get to see all of the work that went into that kind of stuff, yeah. that's that's uh, almost more fascinating yeah. to me. And the and the flying and the guys in there and what they were doing and and uh, so that was uh, those were those were pretty brilliant movies. And since Top Gun, there really hasn't been a great flying movie. It just they tried they tried to do a couple of TV shows about flying, but you know as with Hollywood they they. They think they can just, they, they underestimate the, the audience. Uh, and so, uh, so anyway, so that, that's what fueled me. Was it, uh, was it an interest or drive to actually join the, the armed uh, forces? Was that something that, that you'd wanted to do from a young age? Uh, it wasn't a drive as much as, as it was, well, if I got to go, then I'd like to go as a pilot. Because it was a way to get your license. Um, in, in when I was when I was drafted, um, they weren't taking a lot of guys. The, the war was kind of winding down, so they weren't like desperate for pilots. And so, um, but it was a way to, to get your license to pay for your license. You know, whatever you wanted to do, your helicopter or or aircraft license. Well, as you as you've uh, embraced a creative life as an actor, is that something? that you had an early calling to? Was it something that came to you uh, down the road by chance? Down the road by chance. Uh, I was I was always on stage for a long time. I played music for many years, and and then uh, when uh, up until I went away to college, and then when I came back, I still played in bands and stuff like that, but I wanted to be a director. And by a fluke, uh, I got to shadow a bunch of directors and be on the set uh, of this one show and I read some lines one day for, for the cast and they were just blown away by it. They said, Michael, you got a great quality. You should forget about the directing for a while and just do the acting. And I, I, I'm not a pessimist, but I kind of went, I usually take everything a little, a little. Yeah, okay. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's real nice. That's thanks great. Thanks, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank, you for, thank you for making the kid feel good. And, um, but they kept talking about it for two weeks, and uh, so I went. You know, and these are these are the top of their game. I mean, this is the it was the last two years of Mary Tyler Moore show, and these guys had won seven Emmys and they were on top of the world. I mean, they don't need to blow smoke up a kid's ass here. And so I, um, and so I said, well, let me just see, and I did it. Fell in love with it got an agent right away, got a couple of commercials right away, and um, within a year and a half I was doing Chips. 
And so I kind of went, I think maybe they had a point, you know. So I put the directing on the on a, on the back burner until I until about 30 years later or something like that. He was the uh, was the reigning champion of uh, most episodes mm -hmm. of Star Trek uh, that are that are single actors doing. And in between Next Generation and coming in uh, to Deep Space Nine, you uh, you started working on a, on a series called Gargoyles. Was that your introduction to voiceover work? No, actually, I'd done voiceover before. Uh, not a huge amount, but I'd done uh, about two or three commercials uh, with voiceover, uh, you know, for radio spots for uh, the FM, uh, the FM uh, stations in, um, in Los Angeles. And I think I may have done one TV commercial voiceover. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, so I had done a couple, but not the not to that great degree as. Um, when I left, or when I left Next Generation. Because I've spoken to a number of voice directors, like uh, Andrea Romano, who's done your commercial oh, cartoons. Oh, I know Andrea and very well. worked with her uh, half a dozen, times, yeah. dozens and dozens of times. One of the things that's become more um, uh, more rare as, as we go along is getting the whole cast for a voiceover session in the same room can't and do doing it. it like radio theater. It just, I mean, it just can't do it, can't happen. Mm -hmm. You know what? What was the what was some of the magic that you that you saw in whether it was the gargoyles recordings or some of those early uh, cartoon shows that, that you worked on? The magic? There yeah, wasn't really magic. There was um, you learned a lot about the politics of the business. You learned that it's not just going out there and putting your voice on a tape and sending it in and people go, oh, that's great because. There are a lot of people with really great voices out there. You know, what I mean, it's, it's incredibly competitive. Oh but I mean, God. I, I got to say, you're—I mean, you're—you're you're, you're one of those top draft picks when it comes to bring somebody in, have them do a voiceover. You've got—you've got presence. You've got resonance. Doesn't mean anything. Really doesn't. I mean, I went into a, a, an audition one time, and there was a guy who was—I said, "Hey, how you doing, Michael Dorn? Why are you doing?" I mean, his voice was like lower than mine, and I was <laughs> like, "Holy!" So. So it really is, and it's and it's a closed market. I mean, it's a very it's like this. There's there's only a certain amount of people that do everything, and so I was fortunate that uh, because of Star Trek, because they heard me and heard my voice, and it was a good show and people liked it, that they said, "We want him. We want him." And that's the that's the way to do it. That's one of the ways is that if you're on a show, and people hear it, producers hear it, and they say, "We want that guy. We want that guy. We want that type of guy." Sometimes. But it was uh, it was quite the quite the introduction when I started doing more and more voiceover work because it was uh, it was great, but it was uh, very competitive. Going back to, to Star Trek, when they came back around to you and said, "Well, we've got this other show, and we'd love for you to jump in here, mm -hmm. and um, you know maybe maybe we'll uh, we'll change the color on your uniform and we'll give you a little bit more to do, even even more than you already had." What was what was that decision like? Was that an easy decision? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me jump in. Yeah, it was the decision to do the role and is is never never difficult. I, I love working and I'm not one of those actors that oh I don't want to do this and oh no you know I'm I'm pretty much a journeyman where I if it's a good role and I do it. Um, but they had they did not say that at first. I just got a call from the producer. He said, "Would you be interested?" And I said, "Sure." And then I got a call later, and they started negotiating. And that's when I went in and had a meeting with them and said, okay, I'd love to come back, but I want to come back like this. And if you guys aren't going to do that, then let me know. 
right now. What were your demands? What were your? What well, were they weren't <laughs> demands. They weren't <laughs> demands. They, not at all. I just said I wanted the character not to be standing around. Uh, I don't. I don't want him to be on the show just because you want to make you know help with the ratings, and that's it. We'll just stick him there. We'll stick him there. And I said I really want him to to grow as a character. And they said okay. I mean, they said okay, no problem. And they fell down a little bit because um, they said there was going to be a number of shows, um, but it didn't turn out that way. Um, it wasn't as as they advertised. It was still really good, but it was it should have been it. They promised to be more in terms of the intensity of the of the amount of shows, but. They had eight other actors or something like that, or nine. I forgot what it was, but when you you know, big you cast, big a set, big cast, uh, A B C D E F storylines going on all the time. It was just incredibly surreal. Was what the series. But I, I got to admit, there was two shows that are my favorite Klingon shows that that uh, that were in deep space. So, so they did, they did, they weren't, they weren't. It wasn't entirely a you know. Oh, I hate this. Not at all. I, I just. I just would like to have done more. What did you love about those two episodes? What was it that you got to do, you know? And well, they were they were they were written by Ron Moore, who's a, a wonderful writer. And I mean, he's he's emeritus king of Klingon. Yeah, definitely. And so, and he wrote two episodes that were, I wouldn't say Shakespeare, but they were definitely um, literate. You know what I mean? They were. Yeah. They were classical in, in, in the basic. Uh, well, I, I mean, they were, they were um, not Shakespearean in scope, but Shakespearean in feeling. How the Klingons talked, how they related to each other, how they felt. You know, I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing stuff. I would have, uh, they, they were my favorite, absolutely. So you, you kind of had the, opposite uh, as a character romantically uh, as your friend LeVar who I guess they just couldn't find him a girlfriend on Next Gen but they paired you off with uh, with Maria Sirtis mm -hmm. they paired you off with, with Terry Farrell was this was this something that they just said hey we need to give Worf a girlfriend no. type of thing no not at all um, the, the, the Troy thing I think was a, was a good idea Marina didn't like it but I don't I don't understand it but I thought it was a great pairing because they were polar opposites and I thought that she, her character, brought a lot of wonderful qualities out in him. Um, and it's sort of like she was the only one that could tame the beast, I guess. Or I don't know. It was I love that Beauty and the Beast storyline. And Terry Farrell was uh, was a thing where they had no intention of of us being together. And but they saw the chemistry when we did our few scenes together, and went, "This is the relationship." All right, you need to write an episode specifically to get them together, and then yeah, oh yeah, let's push forward. Mm -hmm. At that point, did they know that she was leaving the show? Oh God, no. That was a surprise to everybody, because um, it was the last year, and I think, I'm well. I think they were all they were always contracted for five years. They weren't contracted for seven, or maybe they were contracted for six. But I know that the seventh season was a 
was a, a renegotiating decision for, for me. It may not have been for them, but anyway. And um, it, it's, you know, it gets a little cloudy in the, in the sands of time about, you know, what it was about. Um, Terry says uh, there were some things. The producers say there were some things. I think it's a little bit in the middle where she probably wanted a little more recognition and maybe more money, probably more money, or, I, you know, I mean, there was that sort of, and they were intractable about a lot of things, uh, as they can be, and um, uh, as their position requires at times, uh, which I understand. And so uh, I think they just couldn't come to a, uh, come to a, a meeting of the minds. And she, you know, which I'm proud of her for doing, is she stuck to her guns and said, okay, no. Knowing that it's really possible that they could have blackballed her. You know, it's one of those things where, but the interesting thing is that you can be blackballed to a point but if some producer or some person, even at Paramount, wants you, they want you. They want you. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, well, she didn't. I give a fuck. <laughs> you know? so, uh, so that's what happened. It was really sad. I, 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 I thought it was, uh, I thought they should have made a deal with her. I thought that uh, if anything, maybe just say, oh, look, okay, we'll pay you the same money, but you only have to do half the shows. Um, but whatever the reason, it didn't happen. I thought it was a mistake. I thought she was, our, our relationship was becoming um, really wonderful and really deep and could have gone who knows where. Now, uh, going from exits to entrances, you have a couple of my favorite entrances in the Star Trek movies. Mm -hmm. uh, one, playing your own grandfather. Yes. Do I have that right? Uh, you just you just walk into the frame and I'm like, oh, hmm, okay. Well, that's that's a, that's a pleasant surprise. And then yeah. and then you uh, you know you come in from uh, you come in from uh, from Deep Space Nine to, to join, uh, really my, my favorite movie in the future. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, uh, I agree. I agree. Uh, what what was uh, what was the difference in working on the tail end of the original series uh, uh, Star Trek movies and you know coming in uh, coming back in to the Next Generation franchise? Well, the the there wasn't really a transition. I mean we. We finished uh, the TV show, and about a month later, we were working on the movie. Maybe even less. So it was just another episode, really. Uh, just bigger. Um, and uh, but the the transition from deeps, I mean, from uh, to uh, first contact was we had been away from each other for not that long, a couple years, and. Uh, we went back, and it was like old home week. You know, it was like a uh, another a, a great reunion, um, and that was a great entrance. Um, I think that the other two entrances for the next two movies, I, I didn't understand them. And uh, it was I like they were trying to talk something that you couldn't exactly talk. I don't think they were. I don't even think they were trying to talk anything. I, I seriously think that that they just said. 
he shows up. How he gets there, I don't know. We'll write a comic book. And it wasn't, you know, it was sort of, you know, just just one of those things that they just probably didn't have the time or the inclination to uh, to try to make it work, you know, make logic. I mean, there was, w I mean, the one after that, after first contact, you go, Patrick says, Mr. Wolf, what are you doing here? Oh, I was in the neighborhood. I mean, seriously, he was like, I was visiting a planet or something like that. And I, well, you can't just jump on a ship and go into it. I mean, you have to like get orders. You have to have people say, and I was still working on Deep Space at the time. So. Yeah, what did he do? Turn to Cisco and say, tell you what, I'm going to take a couple weeks off. I may live, I may die. You know, maybe I'll be back. Well, uh, I, I recently caught another favorite entrance of yours at a comic convention in a movie called Ted 2. Ah. You were wearing a familiar costume. Yes. Uh, you, were, uh, you, were, you were belting nerds left and right. I, it was very disturbing to me, Michael. And I really, it, it, it concerned me. I had a very different impression of you. Uh, Seth MacFarlane is, is probably the, the king of Hollywood who is best to mm -hmm. the next-gen cast. He sure. loves you guys deeply and truly. Did he just, you know, ha call you up, have you called up and say, hey, come, come play for a few days? Uh, they, they actually called. Um, Seth, Seth and I and Patrick and Jonathan and a producer on Patrick's TV show, uh, Blunt Talk, we all went out for dinner one night. And Seth said, hey, can I come along? And I said, sure, you bet. And so he came along, and great guy, had a, had a fun time. And then three weeks later, something like that, I get a call. My agents get a call saying, you know, what's your availability? We're available. Would you? And that was it. And then another month or a couple months went by, and they said, okay, we want to make a deal for this. And they sent me the script. He and I talked about the script, made a couple little changes. And then, um, and then that was it. It's very easy, very, you know, sort of, you know, which is a hallmark of Seth's projects is that it, it's not a lot of stress. You know, it's not a lot of, oh, my God, what are we going to How are we going to fix this? How are we going to bolt this together? And so, so that was uh, that was an easy, you know, it was an easy transition. You didn't, it didn't, it didn't give you any pause, to, you know, knocking trays of food into people. Well, the, the know, thing is that it, it wasn't. It wasn't me, and it wasn't Worf, and it wasn't <laughs> Michael Gorn. So it was, um, I thought it was funny that these two gay guys are the most horrible gay couple that you've ever seen. And horrible couple, horrible two people. But for some reason, as I'm reading it, and as we're doing it, it's getting funnier and funnier. Yeah. The problem is, is that when you read something three or four times, okay, it starts getting funny and funny. When you're watching a movie, you have that one shot at it being funny. And I think probably a lot of people were like going, wow, and, but they were also going, why are these people so mean? You know, they, there was no reason. We're security, what's, <laughs> there, there was like, there was no reason. They didn't give any reason why they hated these people. And so I think that that's, that's one of the things that, um, that we didn't talk about that we should have. Well, what's, uh, what, what catches your eyes of you or what interests you, what makes you sit up and pay attention to movies, TV shows that you're, uh, that you're obsessed with, that you really love that's 
Well, the only one that, that lately, there's, there's, well, of course, the original Law and Order in all the years. Mar in fact, Marina Sotis and I are big fans of that. We're almost lawyers, you know. Um, yeah, they just uh, announced that the Biden's going to show up on HBO. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. And so um, the um, that show and this other show that I was just on called Billions, I thought it was mm. really great. Th that they were filming out in New York. Um, yeah. Giamatti and um, mm -hmm. the guy from Homeland. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Anyway, that, that was a show that I that I got hooked on. Uh, my, in fact, my, my publicist and I were, uh, Julie Nathanson, were both hooked on it for a while. We're like, oh, my God, you see that? And we just talked about it when the, when the finale came on. So, uh, But I don't get to, I'm just not, I just don't television anymore. I just don't, I mean, I watch documentaries mm. a lot. Um, I, I'm on YouTube a lot watching uh, certain authors that I love and certain um, thinkers. They have a lot of, lot of uh, a great deal of um, lectures, and I love watching them. I, Christopher Hitchens was a, mm. I, I got all of his books, and uh, I love him. Noam Chomsky, another one that I just am like enamored with. I got all of his books and things. Uh, Richard Dawkins. Um, uh, there's a guy that wrote Zealot. Uh, he is a Bible scholar. Forgot they his name. They interviewed him on NPR recently. I can't remember. Yeah. Name, but I know he's and um, and he was he was he's great too. So that's that's kind of what I'm getting into, or what I've been into the last, you know, ten years, maybe even more. Uh, I just find um, TV and movies very rare. There is there guys that I like. I love Quentin Tarantino. I watch his stuff. Yeah, there's a Tarantino movie you'll get out of the theater for. Totally, totally. Um, used to watch a lot of. Scorsese movies, um, uh, it just there's not much out there anymore for for me. I mean, and, it, and I guess it's it's just become I don't know. I haven't I haven't figured it out yet, but I, I find television um, not interesting anymore. Not because it isn't interesting, but just from where I am in my life. Close things out. Do you have a, a pocket Christopher Hitchens recommendation that you would have somebody start on Hitchens in one place where you get some stuff? Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't expect no, this to go this this way, but I'm I'm fascinated. Oh, well, you know, there's there's two books. One is 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 a wonderful book. The second is very much apropos to what's happening right now. Uh, the first is, um, that's that's just a general book about him, is um, uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. <coughs> that's the, the quintessential Hitchens. The second one is about the Clintons, and it's called Nobody Left to Lie to. It's quite the 
the expose on the Clintons. It's, it's good, it's factual, it's not a belief book where I think that they're terrible. He lays out, you know, the facts. Um, and Noam Chomsky, too, he, he has a great, uh, his books are a little more, they're more like essays and not actual books. There's a couple that are, and some are just conversations and things like that. But, but he says that if we apply uh, the, um, the rules of war as, by, as per the United Nations um, to our country, every president since Kennedy would be uh, a war criminal and would be in jail or dead. And you kind of go, and the cool thing about Noam Chomsky is that he doesn't tell you this saying, oh, you got to believe what I say like a lot of people do. He says, look it up. You know, it's out there. We have access to everything that's been declassified over the years. It is frightening. Anyway, that's what I'm into, and uh, it's been it's been great. But those two books by, I and Hitchens died, I think 2011, mm. which is travesty. He was I loved him. I thought he was great. I thought he was wrong about the Iraq War, but um, but if he was alive and Hillary was, <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> I can, I can only imagine the things he would have been publishing oh in the last couple of years, right? Oh, my God. Oh, oh. And it's true. It's all, it's, you know. And I try to tell people, you know, and 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 I, I say it like Hitchens, you know, or like Noam Chomsky. I, I have the information that Hitchens has, but I say it like Noam Chomsky. Like, look it up. Don't, don't believe me. Look it up. Because it's... Um, they are, and I would never quote him because I'm not that good at it, and I would never paraphrase, but it, it's well worth reading. It's well worth it. I think if you're interested in anything that has to do with our country, it's it's well worth it. And it's not a big read. It's not a it's no, not, it's not 900 pages. Yeah. Not War and Peace. It, it's concise, clear, to the point, and uh, factual. I, I, would, I would be uh, pained were I not to ask, if Star Trek Discovery looks like it is doing things that are relevant and interesting to the here and now, we've already talked about taking mm -hmm. a more progressive stance with sure, you know, yeah. LGBT issues, mm -hmm. uh, people of color, and so on and so forth, would, would you have an interest in, you know, uh, being nearby and well, you know, I, I, I tell you, I would, um, I would, as much as I love Star Trek and as much as I love the, um, um, what I heard that they were doing, um, I would, I would, I would do it uh, if the part was interesting, you know, and the way that, that I've heard that they are, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything that's uninteresting, so the answer is yes. You bet.